2: It's not because the material is bad or wrong. It's not because I'm slow. It's This is a sign that I just didn't really engage with this material, and I need to spend a little more time on it.
1: Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason Filippo. On this episode, we're talking with my friend Ulrich Bozer. He's the author of Learn Better, Mastering the Skills for Success in Life, Business, and School, or How to Become an Expert in Just About Anything. This book is about learning how to learn. Learning is a constant. If you're preparing for a big speech, you gotta memorize the words. An important memo from your boss, you gotta master the contents. But much of the conventional wisdom on learning is wrong. There's little evidence for learning styles, the idea that some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners. Today, we will learn powerful learning techniques that go way beyond highlighting and simple note taking. We'll discover some of the latest science in metacognition and learning how to learn, and we'll explore why experts call learning how to learn the ultimate modern survival tool, because if we can quickly develop new expertise, we are far more effective at home and at work. Remember, we've got worksheets for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways here from Uli Bozer, and that link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now let's hear from Ulrich Bozer. Uli, thanks for coming on the show, man. I'm just gonna go straight to the nickname because it's fun to say. I agree. Yeah, what we did come here to do is talk about why a lot of the conventional wisdom on learning is wrong. This is something that I always had in the back of my head, primarily when I was in school, because I knew I was smart, sorta anyway, but I was not necessarily good in a lot of classes. And I thought it was the subject. But as I sort of wrote down what I was good at and what I wasn't good at, and later on in my life, I realized, oh wait, I thought I wasn't good at languages, but I was just really bad in French class. Oh, I thought I was really bad at math, but I did really well in this other math class. And of course, then I switched to well, it must be the teacher. And there's something to that, but I realized, of course, 20, 30 years later, that really it was the learning style. And almost nobody is taking this into account. Certainly when I was growing up, schools did not care at all if you were a visual or an auditory learner. They didn't care at all. It was just this is the one size fits all, this is how you learn, and if you can't do it, you fail.
2: Yeah, it's a crazy thing, you know. I often work at a law school near my house because there's no Wi-Fi there, so I get a, a lot done. And I see these people using highlighters, and there's actually a fair amount of research now that shows that highlighters have no effect. But things like talking to yourself are really, really powerful. I want to like shake the
1: students and just be like,
2: there's just really better ways to learn.
1: Yeah, I remember when I was in law school, especially there was one girl in our study group who had I think six or seven different highlighting colors. Each one was for a different type of information, and then she would underline things that were especially important in the highlight, and literally the entire page was highlighted, half of it was underlined, and then she would go and reread everything in those cases. And she was very smart, but she didn't do that well in school
2: yeah i've seen like her cousin and her second cousin and her third cousins there are a lot of students in the law school that i study with who also use the multiple highlighter system you know i think it's one of those things that like it makes you feel comfortable right you like you've got a system but like when it comes down to really learning it like isn't that effective the thing about things that are effective like talking to yourself right is that they seem kind of weird and awkward, right? Like, you know, you don't want to be the person who's like talking to yourself in the law school study group, right? People are gonna just think that you're weird.
1: Yeah, that might have been part of the reason why I only had a few friends in law school, (laughs) all that talking to myself. Jason's making fun of me because my notes for this show, for every show we do, I have Google Docs highlighters and there's all kinds of different colored highlighters. Of course, the distinction that I'm making, the argument I'm making against him here is that's not for me to learn. My learning is the conversation <laughs> element, it's the research element. These highlights are the show structure. So, what I'm trying to say, Jason, is go fly a kite, you're fired.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs>
1: but one of the ways in which I got by in law school was making friends with the people who are really good at reading something from those case books, digesting that information, and then would explain it to me and that's how they would learn, or at least that's how I convinced them that they would learn for the exams, was teaching me all of the stuff and answering all of my questions. So I essentially had private tutors for every subject, and I was able to outsource all of the stuff that I was terrible at, which was staring at pages and pages of legal prose, taking notes on it, and taking a lesson out of that case. I was not good at that, which would have made me a terrible lawyer. However, it was okay because I had a whole team of people that were learning the same material and would simply explain it to me.
2: Yeah, so what's interesting here is that you basically came across these fundamental ideas on your own that researchers have been showing for a while. The bigger thing when we step back, I think, that's important to underscore here is that We often have this view that our like brain is like a computer, right? Like data comes out us, right? And it's like they're on the page of your law school book or in your Google Docs, and then like you know it, right? There's just like instant transfer. Really, instead, like your brain needs to like struggle with the material, make sense of it, connect it to other things, create little hooks so it stays in your brain. And so things like The reason that highlighting doesn't work is that it's a very passive thing, right? You're just – I'm sure many of us have had this experience, right, where you're sort of reading and highlighting and then you get to the end of the page and you're like, I really don't know what I just read. But something like teaching someone else or like going on in a show and like debating it. Right. Those things are actually effective because you have to sit and pause and kind of make sense of it, see if the argument holds for you, see if you can argue it with someone else. And that's really sort of at the root of learning. You know, I had this weird experience. Can I tell the story real quick? Yeah, of course. Go for it. Yeah. So I was talking to this professor down in Florida and we were talking about this idea and, and he was asking me, you know, what was the capital of Australia? And I was like, I thought I knew too. I was like, oh yeah, Sydney, of course. And he was like, no. And I was like, ooh, this is a little embarrassing. Like, how about Melbourne? He was like, no. And I just nope. like, went through cities in Australia that I've like ever heard of, like Perth, Adelaide. And then he was like, it was Canberra. And I was like, no way. Like, that cannot be true. I've never even like heard of the place. And then researchers call this thing the hypercorrection effect. If you believe something to be true, right, if you believe like the immaculate conceptions about Jesus, and then you find out it's really about Mary, and you really thought it was about Jesus, or you thought that Sydney was the capital of Australia, and then you find out that you're totally, completely wrong, you actually know that for a a much longer period of time. You've actually learned more effectively. And I think like a simple way to understand that like your brain really isn't a computer. Like when you make huge errors, that's often when you learn the most because you're forced to be like, wait, why
1: is this true? Like you kind of need to start to make sense of it. Why do you learn more by being wrong and being corrected? Is it the trauma that's involved in being embarrassed at the time? What's going on there?
2: Yeah, so some of it is that trauma, right? It's sort of like an emotional trigger. But it's also like the Immaculate Conception is a good example. You know, a lot of people believe immaculate conceptions about Jesus. It turns out that the Immaculate Conception is about Mary, right? Because if she's going to give birth to the Son of God, she herself needs to be born without sin. And so there's the emotional trauma, so there's that, but there's also just that pause where you're like, wait, is that really true? Like, I gotta think back to Catholic school. What exactly did I learn? you know, why would you want to do that? So you're forced to have these moments where you're really like engaging in the material. And that's a far richer form of learning. So I really argue for people to quiz themselves a lot. It's like a way to push yourself to learn or to explain something to someone else. A great way to learn. Being on a show like this, weirdly, like is it an effective way to learn, right? Because I have to think about like, how are you thinking about this? How am I going to explain it to you trying to figure out like, hey, where's, Jordan, maybe gonna have some misunderstandings. Things where the two of us might not have a common understanding, I need to make sure to explain it. Look, you know, some audiences talking about Australia and what the capital is is like terrible example and other ones it is. So these types of more active forms of learning, they're more effective. The problem is that so many of us, we want the easy way out, we want it to be passive. Not long ago, I was preparing for a speech and I kept rereading my notes and I was like, oh, holy shit, I wrote this whole book arguing for more active forms of learning And there I am like preparing for a speech and using a really passive way of learning, right? Just like rereading my notes, I'd be far better off if I just threw my notes away and just like stood in the room by myself and made myself engage in really just giving that speech, pushing myself to generate it from the nooks and crannies of my skull.
1: Okay, so we want to empower people to become better learners. We want to learn maybe about learning styles. Is that what it comes down to? Is it some people are visual, some people are auditory or is it a little bit deeper than that?
2: Yeah. What's weird is that there is actually no evidence on learning styles. And I know this is an unpopular position. So let's unpack it just for a second. So the idea of learning styles is this, right? That some people, and it's based on their own choosing, right? So if I go to you, Jordan, and you're like, oh, I'm an auditory learner. And then I go to the next person, they're like, I need to learn everything by doing. And then the next person's like a visual learner. One, there's no research for it. But even if you think about it a little bit, Let's say you want to get better at soccer. You're not going to just listen to podcasts the whole time. You realize that you're going to have to go out and play soccer. Maybe a podcast once or twice is going to help you a little bit about sort of, you know, sensing the game. But what ultimately makes a bigger difference is the material itself and how it gets communicated to you, right? So Shakespeare, whether you claim to be, you know, auditory learner, you're still going to have to read it. If you want to get better at sports, you're going to have to do it. Chemistry, you know, is going to involve a number of different things. So What's important to keep in mind is that most of our brains are sort of the same. And, you know, some things we're going to learn better when we engage in it. Visually, we want to see graphics. Some things at the end of the time, we're just really going to have to practice and get our hands dirty, whether it's physics or acting. And then, you know, some things, they're just gonna be visual, so the idea of learning styles just ends up not really holding up, at least in this very tight definition, right? I'm not arguing that people are all the same. Some people have more curiosity, some people are smarter, some people you know, just you know, excited to work a little bit harder, but no such thing, it turns out, as a visual learner.
1: What got you interested in this sort of thing? I know that when you were growing up, you had some learning difficulties, let's talk about that. Is that why you suddenly got interested in, in these types of skills?
2: Yeah, I had a hard time learning when I was growing up. I repeated kindergarten. I spent some time in special education. One fourth grade class, I managed to not be able to read my own handwriting. I couldn't answer seven times seven. I know this because there was a, a psychologist in the back of the room, like writing down all these notes in the ways that I couldn't learn. And you know, I ended up going to a fancy college and doing okay in life. And was a a newspaper reporter and then a a magazine writer for a number of years, but I've always just been fascinated with this idea of like, how do people
1: learn? So often the way we see people learning, like they're just not doing in a way that's effective. So if you have an auditory processing disorder and you told me you're a fan of the podcast, how do those things play well together? Because it seems like if you have an auditory processing disorder, listening to podcasts would be really bad for you, wouldn't do much for you at all.
2: Yeah, when it comes, my auditory processing disorder happens a lot when I'm like writing down numbers or I'm like one of those reporters who tapes every interview because I'm just like not great at the like fast typing of things. But, you know, podcasts and sort of like listening, you know, it's not like I can't listen at all. It's just, I'm a little slower on some of those things.
1: Gotcha. Just making sure that you weren't blowing sunshine up my skirt with the whole, I'm a fan of the show. Just kidding, I can't process audio. Wait a minute, (laughs) what's going on here?
2: And then you'd be like, wait, How am I talking to this guy?
1: Yeah, sorry Jordan, can you write down everything that you just said? That would be helpful, thanks. (laughs) If we could just do this by texting, that'd be great. Yes, perfect, that sounds great. That's the next generation of podcasts. You just watch people text. (laughs) 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 I'll have my kid do that. (laughs) It's a really boring version of Twitch where you watch people play video games, you just watch people (laughs) chat. How is learning how to learn different than the things we hear from IQ tests, or how is it different from smarts or raw intelligence? How does it interact with those types of things? Because, of course, we've all taken IQ tests, we've all been thought of as smart or not so smart, or thought of ourselves in that way when we were younger. How do these things interact?
2: I think for a long time, we didn't really even talking about the skill of learning because we just assumed that it was smarts, right? That those two things were the same. And look, smarts exist, but what's important to keep in mind is that it's a bell curve. In other words, 90% of us basically got the same thing, right? We're basically have similar levels of intelligence. And at the Mm. very tippy top and the very bottom, you have some people who are admittedly brilliant or admittedly not so brilliant. But bottom line, me, you, most of the people we meet, we got the same raw horsepower. But there are these techniques that we can use that you can think of them really as ways in which you're boosting your brain power. And there's some really fun studies about this. You know, I talked earlier about the importance of, you know, explaining ideas like talking out loud. And there's one study where really the headline is improve your IQ by 10 points by self-explaining. And they were able to show a Raven's matrix that people who when they were trying to solve this type of problem by slowing down, by talking out loud, you know, forces you to really kind of crystallize what you're thinking about. It's also a more kind of generative way of approaching, you know, just had more smarts. And there's a lot of other ways that we can use these types of techniques, basically, to make us smarter. So, you know, I think we've long been just obsessed with intelligence, who's got it, who's not. And now we have some clear techniques on learning to learn. And really what they show us is that they're kind of artificial ways to
1: make us smarter. So can anyone get better at learning? I think there's a lot of us listening that think, look, I was bad in school, we're bad learners.
2: Yeah, they're very easy techniques. So one we talked about is just like quizzing yourself. Mm -hmm. Another thing to do when you're practicing is to mix it up. So uh, George, you want to get better at the piano and you have three practice sessions. Those three practice sessions, you can do all Bach on one practice session and all Mozart on the next practice session and all, I don't know, Beethoven on the next one. Or option B is you mix it up. That first learning session, that first practice session, you do all three composers, all jumbled up. Second one, jumble it all up. Third one, little Bach, little Beethoven, never repeating the same thing. Which one do you think you'd learn more, the blocked approach or the mixed up approach?
1: without having already done a bunch of prep for the show, my gut says doing the same thing over and over creates muscle memory, and it creates all these patterns that I will need for later, but I know that I'm wrong now.
2: (laughs) So wait, the highlighters in your Google Docs did work. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it seems like you prepped well.
1: Yeah, that's true. Maybe you are wrong, but it's strange for me because why would doing a bunch of different things be best. You know, when I watch basketball players practice or when I watch people at the driving range, they're not mixing it up. They're doing the same thing over and over again.
2: Yeah, because they're doing it all wrong. You should tell them. So listen, there's a couple of reasons why
1: Yeah, look LeBron, just shooting the same shot over and over, you're never gonna make something out of yourself. Mix yeah, it up. No. He's clearly not had enough success in his life.
2: So yeah, LeBron, um I've written about this as you know, but, you know, LeBron, you know, when he practices, he'll do this sort of blocked approach, this interleaving approach far more effective for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it just makes your learning more active. And I don't know if you've ever had this when you've gone to the driving range, right, where you're just kind of half assed right? You're just not paying enough attention. And then two, and this is a really important idea that gets at something richer about how we learn and how we can get better at learning, is that when we think about something and learning really, ultimately we want to learn sort of deep features. And what I mean by deep features is let's think about like five plus three. You can vary that in different word problems and different contexts. You can use it to solve a tip or buy something. And so those are all the surface features, right? I give you a word problem, like little Jimmy walks into a store and he buys five Kit Kats and then He wants to buy three Snickers, right? But the fundamental idea, the thing that you really want to learn is five plus three. So you can use in all sorts of different situations. And when we mix up our learning, right? So in the piano example, if you do a little... Bach and then do a little Beethoven, you mix them up a little bit, you get a better sense of like what Bachness is and what Beethovenness is and what Mozartness is. And the same thing is true in basketball, right? If you shoot a three-pointer and then a short jumper, you get a better sense of like the underlying thing that makes that shot that shot. And that's why this idea of mixing up learning is just really powerful way to learn.
0: You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and our guest Ulrich Bozer. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important announcements.
3: Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify.
4: That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered.
3: Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort Thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered
4: all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries.
3: Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more
4: variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. indeed.com slash charm terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed thank you for
0: listening and supporting the art of charm to learn more about our sponsors visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers now let's get back to jordan and ulrich bozer
1: that is counterintuitive which i always enjoy hearing about on the show what other sort of preconceptions can we break because When I was in college and when I was in high school, I sat through a lot of lectures. I reread a lot of stuff that I'd already read once and not understood or not paid attention to in the first place. It seems like what I'd learned about learning originally was that it is a passive process whereby, it's almost like the old joke, just keep the book under your pillow and you'll get through (laughs) osmosis. And there's a few times where, honestly, I probably would have gotten the same amount of sleeping on my science book that I did by reading it and reading it again and memorizing things word for word. The way my mom used to study, and she knew this was not effective when she was younger, is memorizing the entire chapters of textbooks, if possible.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other things that are, I think, counterintuitive. I mean, I think one is, you know, people are often overconfident. So this happens a lot to things that you're familiar with. So most people believe that they're above average drivers. Most people believe that they're above average in looks. This one's my favorite. Most people, if you ask them like, do you work harder than your coworkers? Most people are like, oh yeah, I work harder than than most of my coworkers. But this, of course, can't be true, right? We can't all be above average. And the thing is, is when we're familiar with something, we're often overconfident about it, like a toilet. Do you know how a toilet works, Jordan?
1: Uh, Generally, I've used one on a few occasions. On a few occasions. They're actually like w- way more
2: complicated than they seem. So most people are like you are like, yeah, generally I know how a toilet works. Hey, yeah, you
1: poop, then it goes away. Poof.
2: Yeah, poof. It's done. So the question is like what actually happens in this toilet? And when you start thinking about like how a toilet works, like why is it that you can pee into the toilet? The water doesn't go away. But if you take like a big bucket of water and you throw it in and it suddenly flushes or like why does a toilet bowl work when the water is off in the house Basically, we're overconfident in our knowledge of how a toilet works, and this sort of keeps people from studying, keeps people from learning. You know, They end up being overconfident, I think. Oftentimes, we think that we know a lot more than we do. And in my mind, I just see this a lot when people you know are approaching a new topic or they think they know something. They're too confident about what they know. In my mind, I see that issue a lot.
1: Yeah, any homeowner unfortunately <laughs> knows how toilets work <laughs> because if you can't call the landlord, you become an expert real quick.
2: Yeah. I don't disagree with you that since I've become a homeowner, I've like thought about the different types of plungers and like how to approach that. But like I never really thought like there's that weird little like pipe at the bottom. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like a, a upside down U. I thought I'd know how a toilet works mainly because of that pack. But like you, you don't really. And so – when it comes to learning, this is like happens, I don't know, maybe it happened to you in college, right, where you like fail a test where you studied a lot for or you're like, oh, yeah, I definitely know how to change the settings on my computer for X and Y. And then you start doing it and you're like, wait, I actually don't really know what I'm doing. So this issue is what researchers call kind of metacognition or thinking about thinking. And it's a really powerful way to improve your learning skills. So before you start reading something, ask yourself questions like, what do I expect's gonna happen? You know, what do I think I'm going to learn? While you're learning, ask yourself questions like, do I really know this? Could I explain this to someone else? And then even afterwards, right? It's like, you know, how could I have approached this better? What more could I have learned? Where are my gaps? These are just really powerful, powerful tools.
1: So practically speaking, we should make learning as active as possible. So instead of just rereading, we can explain the text to ourselves, or like you said, ask ourselves questions, or maybe describe the skill to someone else, or even just think about how we might describe that particular bit of information or skill to someone else, which is, again, how I studied in law school, and how I was able to convince the other guys and gals that there was value there, which is because they had to constantly explain things to me, and then I would ask questions, and they would go, oh, I guess I hadn't thought of that. Let me think about that for a second. And then they would explain something else to me, or they would research it and come back to that idea, So it sounds a little bit like summarizing what you've learned in different ways.
2: Yeah, I think you put it really well. There's actually a lot of research behind even simply summarizing material So, you know, you watch a movie and you're like, wow, that was a really powerful movie. You want to kind of really understand it better. You know, sending an email of two paragraphs to your friend being like, oh, I watched this movie last night. Here's why I thought it was good. Here's why I thought it was bad. This was a basic idea, but here are some holes. It's you're going to remember it more. So just like simple facts. But you're also going to have a richer sense of the argument that movie's making and how it fits in with other movies. Now, let's be clear here, right? Like, I'm not sure this is totally true with The Avengers. Maybe you know, more with some documentaries, but this basic idea that we're talking about, really powerful way to get better at something, and it's true whether you're in the office or, you know, in a social situation or, you know, want to learn about plumbing.
1: One of the ideas that struck me was that, obviously, we forget all the time, but most people forget about half of what they learn within 24 hours, and of course, what's worse is we forgot about what we forgot, or we think we can remember, or we think that we do remember, but we actually can't. What can we do about that? What's going on here?
2: Yeah. What's weird is that I was like really excited to come on the show. I was thinking about it earlier today. I was like, oh, sweet. You know, I'm going to be talking with Jordan today. And, you know, I know that other people out there are like sharing my passion for the show. And what's weird is that like if there are people out there listening and within 24 hours someone were to come to them and ask, and they hadn't heard of like the word, say, metacognition before and be like, oh, you know, what, what was on that show? People forget half of what they learn within 24 hours. And within a couple of days, you learn you know, upwards of 100%. And you know, that makes it really depressing when you're going out there being like, oh, you know, people should learn how to learn because you, know, you realize all the people that you're like, excited to talk to are basically not really going to remember what you said. So there's a couple of things that are important here. I mean, one is we forget about how much we forget. We often are overconfident in the degree to which we think we're going to remember. What is important is to space our learning out over time. The more that we allow ourselves to remember something, to forget it, and then re-remember it, is much more effective. So we can see this in, you know, using flashcards. If you use big stacks of flashcards, spread your learning out over time is great. If you want to be prepared for a big speech, you know, starting early so you allow yourself that time to forget, relearn, that's really what leads to retention. So forgetting is this weird thing, right? It has a bad reputation. And this is one of, again, these counterintuitive findings from the learning research. You know, we think forgetting actually hurts learning, but forgetting actually is a great way to learn, right? It allows us to change our perspective, to get a different angle on something, you know, helps us weirdly remember. We got to learn, forget, remember
1: misremembering or forgetting is unavoidable. So what we need to do is spread that learning out over time, regularly revisit the skills and the knowledge, and then deliberately give ourselves time to forget, so that we can then review again and then forget something else, but remember some of it, forget something else and remember some of it, until we've kind of gone through the inevitable, unavoidable forgetting and remembering process about enough of the material that we remember what we need to remember.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we know this a little bit. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You're like writing an important email. And so you write it in the morning and then you put it into Google Drafts and then you reread it the next day. And you're like, well, I missed like some huge errors, right? And so we do that. But so often when we think about other contexts, we just don't do enough to like allow ourselves to forget. And so I got little kids at home. They get their homework Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We've started my own house just, you know, no homework on Wednesday, but do it on Sunday. It's an easy way to encourage that type of forgetting that allows you to sort of reapproach something a little bit later and be like, ooh, did I not totally understand that? I forgot this. And that helps you remember it for a lot longer. The reverse is this is also true, right? Like when you're talking to someone like a client or someone on your board they will have forgotten. It's so easy to just like launch in whatever you're excited to say, not give them that like initial moment, be like, Oh, remember last month we were talking about these earnings ratios? And you know, give them that moment to like be like, Oh, yeah, this is what we were
1: talking about. How do you keep that <laughs> thought monitoring, that metacognition going in the moment? Is there some way that you built that habit? So, if we're going to monitor our thoughts as we learn and ask ourselves questions like, What do I know? How do I know? does this really make sense? Could I explain this to a friend? Which, by the way, are also great for critical thinking, and these are all things I do on the show when people are explaining things to me, instead of just going, oh, okay, I just say, wait a minute, did I understand that? If not, you know, we'll go back and revisit it. How do you build that habit of metacognition in the moment? Because I think a lot of us are just busy keeping up, or taking notes, or highlighting, or trying furiously to keep up with what we're doing that we might not think we even have time to think about what we're hearing, learning, thinking, and doing.
2: I think there is like this obsession with note-taking where it's like, I want to get down every single word that this person says. Look, there's a time and a place for that. You're a lawyer doing a high-stakes deposition or you're a reporter and you really want to get someone's quote. But most of the time, right, you're interacting with your boss, shoot, you know, you're talking to your partner at home. I mean, basically you want to get the gist of the thing and make sure you understand it and then can apply it You know, if you're getting instructions on how to use a device of some sort, or, you know, if you live in my household and, you know, you're told to go get the milk and then, you know, got to pick up the dry cleaning and then make sure by 3.30 you get the kids, you know, repeating it back and being like, did I really understand this? Engaging that more active things is more important than making sure you got every word down. So I would just push people to understand that like getting each word down often isn't as important as kind of getting this big idea down that is the fundamental of what you're trying to learn, the skill that you're really trying to gain. So I thought you identified it nicely where it's just really a habit, you know, it's a habit of getting into of saying like, did I really get this? And also having that confidence to say, like, if I didn't get this, it's not because the material is bad or wrong. It's not because I'm slow. It's this is a sign that I just didn't really engage with this material and I need to spend a little more time on it.
1: Another concept that was counterintuitive for me was that learning is not a rational process. Learning to me seemed like the most rational process around, but your argument is that learning is a deeply emotional activity. What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so I think we have this thought, right, where like our thoughts are, Cool and crisp and rational. And then there's our feelings, right? And they're like tumultuous and, you know, anger, greed, jealousy, right? And that those two things are totally separate, right? And so basically our bodies are separate from our brains. But that's not really how it works. Our thinking and our bodies, our feelings and our thoughts, they're all kind of like wrapped up into one and they're really connected. And so that helps us understand, you know, why emotions are so helpful for learning, why we need to feel quiet and safe while we're learning. There's a little exercise that I often do with folks to help them do this. Just take a second, close your eyes and and like think about your childhood bedroom, you know, where you kept your toys, color of the room. Folks want to, you know, engage in this process. Don't be driving or anything like that. So most people, if they really engage on it, right, they really just sort of like close their eyes. They think back to their childhood bedroom, you know, give them a few moments, they lean backwards. And then if you start encouraging people to think about how they're going to retire, what about their future, how they're going to live in the Bahamas, they start to lean forward. And basically what happens, if you really engage on it or a listener really engaged on it, they thought with their torsos, they thought with their body. This is like such a weird thing that I think people like don't really grasp, but your body really like did the thinking. There's tons of examples of these. I find them really fun. But like if you have two of the same pens in front of you and you give the finger to one pen, right? And you're like, bad pen. You have like negative thought of that pen. And then like you wave at the other pen. You give the finger to one pen, you wave at the other pen. In lab tests, if people were to be like, oh, here's the pen that you gave the finger to and here's the pen that you you know, kind of gave a, a positive wave to – even though they're the exact same pen, right, those two pens are not any different, you'll have more negative feelings. You'll think it'll be a worse pen, the one that you gave the finger to, and then the one that you waved at, you're like, oh, that's a, a better pen. What's important about this is that your body, again, helped you engage in the thinking and those emotions shifted the way that you think. And so this is just so important when it comes to learning. And it, wanna, it helps us understand, you know, if you really want to engage in something, you got to feel calm, you got to feel open to learning it you want to eventually really, you know, if you want to become an expert in golf or an expert in Excel or an expert in Russian history, ultimately, you got to think about that expertise is like, how do you get your sort of emotions involved? How do you get to be in that spot where you can connect your thinking with the ways that you're feeling? Because that's really what expertise is. Tons of other examples when we think about reflection or other work, but ultimately, you know, our bodies, how we feel, so important for how we learn. Yet we live in a society where people, you know, really just don't value how we feel. We just think learning is all about that knowledge, and we gotta stuff it into our brain, or as you said, you know, just sleep on the book.
0: Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more from Ulrich Boser after these brief announcements.
4: That's K-A-J-A-B-I.com slash charm. Go to
3: Kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over
0: $7 billion. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. For a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Ulrich Boser. In Learn Better,
1: You argue that one of the most underrated learning strategies is compare and contrast. And when I think of that, of course, I think of Venn diagrams and compare contrast essays in school and things like that. What is going on when we compare and contrast something? What are we doing with the relationships within an area of expertise that is helping us so much? And how do we put this into practice?
2: Yeah, compare and contrast is what researchers call analogical reasoning, incredibly powerful. Because look, at the end of the day, fact by itself is important, right? It helps you learn, but it's not really the richer aspect of learning, right? Which is how do we use that fact to solve problems? So researchers really believe just compare and contrast, finding pairings, relationships between two things is really what helps us learn. Uh, Let's take something like, you know, you want to learn about the ocean. You could learn about the temperature of the ocean. Interesting. But really what you want to know is if water temperature goes up, like what happens to water? It tends to expand. This helps us understand why climate change can be so powerful, right? I was really excited about this idea. I took a wine pairing class. And, you know, it was really interesting illustration of this idea for me, because instead of learning, you know, what country produces the most Merlot, You know, the wine pairing, I was like, oh, you know, this is why the fat in the cheese kind of cuts the tannins. I learned more about why sweet wine goes with spicy food. And it's those types of relationships that are going to help me understand, you know, next Thanksgiving, I'm like, oh, you know, do I need a white or a red wine as opposed to really caring about these facts in and of themselves. Using that compare and contrast, analogies, metaphors, really powerful way to like grasp with learning in that,
1: that richer way. So when people are learning something new, they should be engaging and comparing and contrasting because it helps us maybe more easily spot the connections within that area. Yeah, I mean,
2: let's just say you want to learn like what really is a dog? You're like, what is a dog? And so one way to really figure out like what makes a dog a dog is to like look at mastiffs and then look at a little schnauzer. And look at, you know, a beagle. And once you start comparing them, you start getting a better sense of, like, what a dog is, right? They don't necessarily have to all be the same size, but they need to have a nose, they need to have a tail, they need to be mammals and give live birth, right? You get a better sense of, like, what ultimately is a dog. And so we see this in so many areas, you know, if you want to get her at sports or get better at anything you do in the office. Just comparing things gives us a really powerful way to sort of understand the underlying idea, and that's really what we care about when we care about learning
1: anything. Okay, and when you mention that we should be sure to look for analogies because those promote understanding, can you give us some examples of this? I mean, I'm finding it hard to think about how a marketing analogy would help me understand politics better or something along those lines. I would love an example in this area so that people can start to use this as well.
2: Sure. So we do this to a degree, right? When you talk about like Uber, but for like kindergartners or Uber, but for food, you know, which is basically blue apron, we're using Uber, right? Like we all understand what Uber is and then we're applying it to different fields and that gives us creative insights. And no doubt, lots of people have been creating companies that do this. But it also allows us to think about things in you know new ways. So when you think about kind of technological innovations, you know, in something like Twitter, it's basically sort of Facebook meets text messaging, right? And so it's a mashup of two things. And so we can think of all sorts of new ideas in this way. It allows us to learn in new ways. It allows us to be far more creative. It allows us to be really inventive. So you see this in politics, you know, for a while there was that three strikes law, you know, basically taking baseball into politics, you know, we see it in music a lot. But it's really a great way to
1: understand really just about anything. One thing that gets a terrible rep in schools and academics and education these days are tests. Do you think tests are set up in a way that they're ineffective, that they don't work? Should we be eliminating tests? I mean, we had plenty of tests when I was going to school, but I know now there are schools where they don't believe in tests and things like that. Where do you stand on this? Are tests good for learning, or what?
2: Yeah, I mean, tests have like a terrible reputation, right? I mean, they're like the dentist, right? Like, no one seems to like them, and I'm talking about low-stakes quizzes, right? Just asking yourself, questions or having someone else ask you questions that are low stakes. Because one, they're more active forms of learning, right? They help you really generate material. They also help you think in richer ways. So there was a study not long ago where they had a group of people. And one group of people, you know, they were like you and me in college. They read the material once and then they got a test on it. And they knew about 25% of kind of the richer things second group of people were sort of like the eager beavers in college, read the material once, then read it a second time, and then took a test. They learned around 50%, and then they had a third group. This group read the material once. Then put the material down and then just had to engage in free recall. Really just write down what they learned in this kind of very low stakes quizzy type thing and learned, you know, around 75%, doing much better. And this type of retrieval of knowledge, of information, you know, is this incredible way to learn. And it's not just these richer things, it's also knowing facts. There's this weird thing, Jordan, where basically scientists now believe you don't forget anything. Okay. And this is a weird thought, right? Like, you know, the color of your kindergarten teacher's dress, like, you know, you you would be able to remember that. But it turns out that basically we remember these things, but it's like stored in our attic and we've forgotten how to get it. And so really what makes a difference is the degree to which you retrieve the information. So your brain basically has a way to sort of tuck things away if you don't you know, actively bring them out of memory. And often this is a good thing, right? Like if you want to remember where you parked the car, you don't want to remember where you parked the car a month ago. You want to remember where you parked the car today. And so this retrieving information, quizzing yourself, explaining things to yourself, having other people just give you short little tests, a uh, fantastic way to learn. You know, what's great about tests is that they give you feedback. They give you concrete performance metrics. Yeah. They give you concrete performance
1: metrics. Let's talk more about feedback. I know that feedback is important we talk about it in the workplace. We talk about always seek feedback, always give quality feedback. What role does feedback play in the learning process?
2: You know, it's interesting that it's just so embarrassing, right? I mean, we have this sort of like, social contract where I'm not supposed to get feedback from you. I'm not supposed to give you feedback. I really like basketball. I'm kind of, you know, middle-aged guy with a little bit of a, you know, pot I played basketball, you know, with other middle-aged pot belly guys and realized that, you know, I was more like middle-aged and pot belly than a lot of them. And so I got a basketball tutor. And at my age, right, when you're like in your forties, you are not supposed to get a basketball tutor, maybe golf, maybe tennis, but basketball is just like, it's not supposed to happen. And so I would go to these like sessions with this guy and all the other people like waiting around, basically like parents my age who would have kids my age. And I like either pretend like my kid was there and he was like in the bathroom, of course, or just like not make eye contact with them. And the weird thing is that like, even though I've been writing my entire life about learning, I was shocked myself at like how much I learned from this, you know, basketball tutor. I mean, some of it, and this is a value of feedback is that it's really just hard to see yourself, right? Like you get so wrapped up in your own little world, what you do and something like basketball, you know, I knew from when I was in elementary school that like my feet were supposed to face the basket, but the nature of playing basketball is that you don't pause to figure out where the hell your feet are. And so it took a coach to just be like, you got some problem with your feet right there. And so, Feedback is really sort of at the heart of instruction, right? It's kind of giving you that information that you need. So now when I have like interactions with people, even shows like this, Jordan, I'm going to say like, as soon as this show's over, the first thing that I'm going to say to you is like, give me some feedback. I'm going to make sure that you have to give me negative feedback. We have to like disrupt this contract. We have performances or do things, right? Where it's give a talk or talk to an employee or give a presentation where everyone's like, oh, you did great we just gotta get in the habit where you're like, you gotta give me one thing I need to work on. So at the end of the show, I'm gonna to have to bug you about that because I feel like you know it's just uncomfortable and we need to get beyond that because that's what makes you get better. And really kind of learning to learn is about that. It's about you know what are the ways that we can get better at getting better?
1: Well, I've got feedback, all right. <laughs> but it it does make sense that we would want insights from outsiders, people to shine a light on things we're doing right, things we're doing not so right, maybe asking colleagues to do this i mean how do we solicit feedback if we don't have a basketball tutor how do we do this in our daily life from our employers our colleagues our friends and family because i think a lot of people go i want feedback and what they really mean is i want you to compliment how well i just did
2: <laughs> you know in my mind it's really just like making that informal agreement with people it's like you have to give me one thing to work on and look you know i'd love to say that like i'm a leader in this way but since the book has come out i've been like you know people you got to give me feedback reporters that I've talked to, friends who, you know, visited. And it was only recently I gave a talk at Google and, you know, like many people, I was like scrolling through the comments. Someone was like, this guy says right at like the end of every paragraph. and I was like, oh my God, like he's totally (laughs) right on. And, uh, you know, it was only the, you know, random commenter who, you know, decided to weigh in in the wonderful anonymity of the internet that was like, you know, gave me that
1: feedback. Yeah, YouTube though, man, you gotta be careful because my YouTube talk (laughs) comments where they're like, this guy's haircut sucks. This guy sucks, he's so boring. And other people are like, he's hilarious. Uh, He should do this other thing, but he's fat. And it's like everybody, no, he's not fat. You're an idiot. That's what YouTube looks like. It's like the ISIS of the internet. It's just everybody who's awful goes there and starts talking about how awful the videos are. So yes, I get it. YouTube is probably a place where you go and you think 90% of this feedback is actually just a kid acting out. You have to sort of judge where you can get credible feedback. This might actually be a great example because you probably should not be soliciting feedback from certain places. I think YouTube (laughs) might be one of those places, but okay, take with it what you will because you drew attention to something for you. Well, clearly I
2: shouldn't get it from my friends, right? Because they were not the people to point this out. But I agree, the trolls are bad.
1: Yeah, I think you can draw attention to something and you can go, do I have a terrible haircut? Nah. Do, am I fat? <laughs> nah. You just have to be really comfortable and, and not just accept all of that feedback. How do you parse for useful versus unuseful feedback?
2: That's a good question. I mean, some of it is just that self-recognition. And then some of it's like, well, if you've heard it from more than one person, it might start to be a problem. I have a tendency to talk a little too fast. have heard it from a lot of people. And then it's like, okay, you know, how do I really work on this? So there's hearing it, there's deciding, as you pointed out, right? Like, is this actually a problem that I need to work on? And then there's sort of like, how do we internalize it, right? So to make sure that we talk more slowly and make sure that we express our thoughts in thoughtful ways and also the respect the audience, whether it's a friend that we're talking to or a whole bunch of people, because ultimately you talk because you want to be understood, right?
1: Sure, ideally. Ideally. Yeah, that's the look. Uli, thank you so much, man. A, A lot of people come in wanting to learn better, thinking they can't learn because of experiences they've had in school, or they're going back to learn new skills and they're thinking, oh, what worked for me in school? Read, highlight, and reread. And I think we should update our technology, right? We haven't updated our learning technology since most of us were in elementary or high school.
2: Yeah, we're learning really all the time, right? I mean, you get a memo from your boss, you get a new phone, right? I mean, we're just learning all the time. So what are the ways we can get better at learning? What are the ways that we can get the technologies to work with us so that we can focus and really engage and get these skills kind of faster, more efficient, more productive ways?
1: Oli, thank you so much. Great, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks so much, Jordan. Interesting show, Jason. I like the idea that learning is a skill. I like that we can improve it, I like that we can work on it, that we can learn how to learn, because all through school, I mean, you probably had the same experience. Some classes you were good, some classes you were bad, some subjects you were good, some subjects you were bad, and then later on in life, those would flip, and of course, you and your parents just thought, oh, he got interested in math, or he got interested in science, and or maybe the teacher's better, but really, it had to do with The way that you were learning, the types of things you were learning, the way you were studying and all these different types of factors go into play. And frankly, I never had any idea how to improve that process as a student, especially when I was younger.
0: Definitely. I think we had the same experience in school. I was terrible at a lot of things and good at some things. And it turns out the things that I was good at were physical. And that's how I learned back then. And, you know, things change. But I love this concept of learning to learn for sure, because it'll reduce the time that I'm sitting there banging my head against the wall trying to get a concept in my head. Exactly, exactly. And the book title, of course, is
1: Learn Better, mastering the skills for success in life, business and school, or how to become an expert in just about anything. We will link to that in the show notes and we'll link to Uli's Twitter so you can thank him for being a guest today on the show. That'll also be linked up in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to tweet at him and tweet at us your number one takeaway from Ulrich Boser. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger and I have changed my email contact info. I'm jordan at jordanharbinger.com. Explanations for all that coming down the pipe, don't worry. You don't have to email me and ask. I will eventually be able to talk about everything that's going on here, a lot of big news. This is not the time for it, though. And don't forget, we have worksheets for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways here from Uli Bozer. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharmcom slash podcast. I also want to encourage you to join us in the challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free, a lot of people may not know that. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum, apply the things you're learning here on the show to your life every single day. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes great practical stuff, ready to apply right as soon as you hear it, Stuff like reading body language and nonverbal communication, the sciences of charisma and attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach, it'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com/slash challenge. This episode was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogerty. Transcriptions by TranscriptionOutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.